0: Hello, everyone. This is localjobnetwork.com radio. I'm Tim Yuma, and you've checked into I Want to Be A, where in each episode, we finish that sentence with a particular job or industry, giving you some inside knowledge on what it takes to succeed. Within science, there are almost limitless opportunities to carve out a career for yourself, and chemistry as well provides some flexibility. Diving into this field a bit is Steve McGuire, who joined the show to give us some details behind nanochemistry, as well as chemistry in general. Also, nanochemistry could be a place where you contribute in a variety of fields, maybe electronics, medicine, a lot of different opportunities, as we mentioned. Steve, thanks for coming on the show today. No worries. First of all, I just want to get a little bit of your background, give our listeners idea of where you're coming from. So if you could fill us in on your professional career.
1: I did a master's in nanochemistry at the University of Ottawa under Tito Scano. And then after that, I went on to do some PhD work in a completely unrelated field. And now I am teaching.
0: (laughs) Okay, great. As we talked about before the show, you know, with chemistry, a lot of things sort of get mixed in, uh, you know, a lot of general discussion we might have, and we'll try to keep As much as we can focus on the nanochemistry side, but um, just to give our listeners an idea that there's a lot of interdisciplinary mixing when it comes to chemistry. I guess the first thought I had, though, was in terms of nanochemistry, how do you define that in layman's terms for those of us that really don't know what that means exactly?
1: Uh, Nanochemistry is basically making materials where the interesting features are less than about 100 nanometers, and a nanometer is one billionth of a meter, so it's really (laughs) small.
0: All right. Uh, so somewhere, you know, something that people really wouldn't probably be involved with. Uh, do you see this as having a greater purpose in society or how would you view nanochemistry in the grand scheme of things?
1: Nanochemistry is something that contributes to a lot of different fields. Uh, you mentioned some. There's like uh, new batteries, new fuel storage, solar power, there's cancer treatment, uh, biotech optics, there's all sorts of uh, ways. Nanochemistry can be applied.
0: Mm-hmm. What was it then that sparked your interest? I mean, obviously, look to seek out that master's degree. What drew you there?
1: Uh, it's actually a, a trail of serendipity. <laughs> okay.
0: when, I was,
1: when I was doing my undergrad, I knew that I did not want to be an organic chemist because there is so much more to the periodic table than just carbon. Ah. <laughs> so I, I settled on zeolites, which are, I would call them a synthetic rock with really tiny holes in it. Okay. And you can do all sorts of neat things with zeolites. You can do catalysis. Uh, you can stop your reaction from boiling over. They're not quite nano, like the, the, the holes are the size of a molecule. So you can make long skinny molecules, but not squat fat ones, if that's what you want to do. <laughs> so I applied to grad school. I was accepted at University of Ottawa, but I hadn't picked a supervising professor yet. And then one day, a friend and I were watching TV, flipping channels, and we see something, a picture of a chemistry lab. So we stopped and we watched and it was a professor at the University of Ottawa who worked with zeolites. So I thought, well, this is perfect. Um, this is the sort of thing that only happens on TV. So I emailed the guy and said, hey, I've just been accepted. Can I work in your uh, lab? I want to work with zeolites. And he emailed back and said, yeah, sure, whatever. <laughs> so, so I turned up in Ottawa, all Brad bushy-tailed, and said, right, where are the zeolites? I'm ready. He said, um, we've done everything we want to with zeolites here. Have some nanoparticles. Uh-huh. So he he seen something in the literature, and he got an idea. So, and I just turned up right at the exact right time to start with that idea. So Hmm. I did really all of the pioneering work in that group on nanoparticles. Oh, nice. And and since then, they've done all sorts of neat stuff.
0: Well, let's get in a little bit, at least as far as how you've applied nanochemistry in your career to give listeners an idea of what exactly can be used or how it can be applied.
1: Uh, I was working with silver nanoparticles. So a nanoparticle is Basically, a chunk of the material where all of the dimensions are on the nanoscale. And when you get things down that small, you get new properties that you haven't seen before. Hmm. So for silver, like you, you can get colloidal silver. And it, it does nothing, but people think it does. And <laughs> it doesn't really look like anything because it's, it's chunks of silver that are sort of micrometers. So it's like the next scale size up. Right. If you get down to nano, your solution is yellow, hmm. and actually, these these like silver and gold nanoparticles have been known since the Middle Ages. Because if you look at a stained glass window in in like the old cathedrals in Europe, sure, the the yellow color in the stained glass is silver nanoparticles. Okay, they, they, when they were like making the glass, they threw some silver in, and they got this color out. And if they threw in some gold, they got you know like blue or some red or some purples depending on how big it was.
0: Mm-hmm. So for yourself then. And you hear about, okay, they've known about this since how long? How has technology been able to help you help the field in terms of improving or being able to apply it in different ways?
1: Well, for one thing, we can look at them better now. Like in the Middle Ages, they didn't know what was happening. Okay. All they knew is because they actually, they, they put in gold colored metal mm-hmm. and they got out every color except gold. They put <laughs> in the silver, they got yellow. And they didn't know why. Okay. But in the modern era of scientific investigation, we have tools where we can actually look at the nanoparticles. So in my work, I used an electron microscope to look at the nanoparticles I made. And it was cool because you could see the individual atoms. Mm-hmm. And you, like they're arranged in little lines and stacks and crystals. It was cool. <laughs> and there's also another, uh, another technique called atomic force microscopy, which is where you have your sample and you drag this tip across it. And then based on how much resistance tip sees as it, as being dragged across, you get a picture of the surface it's seeing. So I can see my nanoparticles that way as well.
0: Oh, okay. Well, that's cool. What would you point to then uh, that you did love about it or love about nanochemistry? Was there something that really, I don't know, drove you when you were working with some of those particles?
1: The thrill of discovery, I would say. Okay. Which okay. is true of most scientists because the project I was working on, like I was at the start. So it was the stage of, can we do this? Sure. And the answer turned out to be yes. <laughs> so, and then other people took up that and ran with it and did other stuff, but, when I was there, well, research is inherently a frustrating endeavor. So when something goes right, you really get excited. So I remember running down the hall to my boss's office with a little vial of yellow stuff going, it worked, it worked, it worked, which is probably not a good idea. <laughs> Kids, don't take samples out of the lab.
0: Ah, good, good advice right there.
1: It was all sealed up, and it wasn't exposed or anything, but I probably could have just called him and asked him to come look. But when you've suffered for so long, and you finally got progress and success and results... You just want to share it with everybody who's been waiting for
0: it. Makes perfect sense to me. And of course, you were simply excited. What What are you going to do about it? You're just going to let it flow. On the flip side of things, where, is there something that really you don't like, you wish you could change? Maybe it's not nanochemistry specifically, maybe it's chemistry in the general sense. Is there something you would point to that, eh, I wish maybe that was a little different?
1: I would like to see a little more support for science in general, hmm. in both Canada and the States, because there's been not a lot of government support for it recently. Like investing in science and technology right. is really what sets a first world nation apart from a less developed nation.
0: And how would you, I mean, is it just come in the form of funding? Are there other ways that there could be support that you would point to?
1: There's ideological support. I mean, in both Canada and the States, there's a, a societal backlash against science.
0: I was, where does that, I mean, do you see where that's stemming from or is there, are there specifics you can point to?
1: Well, in Canada, we had a research area called the Environmental Lakes area, and it was a world-class facility where you could see the effect of various things on the environment because they had this complex of little lakes in northern Ontario they could experiment on and, and gather valuable data. And the Canadian government just shut that down. Mm. They spent $2 million to save $500,000 because they didn't like the results that were coming out of that. So I really like to see more government support and less government suppression of science and research.
0: All right. Well, fair enough. And that's why we're having these conversations. And um, something, as you said, has definitely been seen and heard and felt in the U.S. as well as Canada. You have that specific example there for yourself. Let's switch gears a little bit. We talked about the profession, the idea of nanochemistry, chemistry in general, as um, some of the stuff we'll talk about now probably gear itself more towards the field as a whole. And the first thing I want to touch on was education. What are our listeners looking at in terms of time, um, schools, what exactly they can can dive into? Can you look into just general chemistry? Do you have to pick a specific discipline? Just fill us in a little bit on that beginning part of the education process.
1: Uh, that depends on what you want to do in chemistry. Okay. Like I, I went into research. Well, I went into teaching. But I started in research. Mm-hmm. And if you're doing any sort of research, research, you have to go to grad school. Okay. Preferably for the PhD. You cannot do research without grad school. Oh, okay. That's, that's, that's where you learn how to do research is where you learn the skills. It's where you actually make your connections because your boss will know a bunch of other researchers. So that's where your networking is going to be Mm -hmm. is your research supervisor.
0: When we talk about the idea of education, we always want to know, are there other things our listeners could be doing or trying out on their own sort of extracurriculars that could help them facilitate the process a little bit, get some experience. Uh, We ask about internships, field work. What, What would you suggest in those areas?
1: As far as undergraduates go, you can be a summer grad, like a summer research student in a research lab. So, okay. it's usually in your, your third or fourth year before you start grad school. You spend a summer or you can do an honors project over your fourth year with a researcher at your university. Um, and for the summer research, like you will work on a, like a fairly limited smaller project under the supervision of a grad student or a postdoc, postdoctoral researcher. Uh, and if you're a summer student, uh, it is a paid position, so it beats flipping burgers. <laughs> and you get the the experience of working in a research lab, performing the research, and more importantly, writing up your findings okay. and making conclusions about it. It's not just doing the research, it's understanding what you've done and communicating that coherently.
0: Well, I think it's great to hear, just for our listeners to understand that you really get that practical experience. And as you said, not only the research, but being able to understand and analyze what's going on. I think that's really cool for our listeners to hear. How about the process of applying for jobs? And as you touched on, I mentioned off the top, there are almost limitless opportunities in different areas you can go into. But are there any areas that you would suggest job seekers maybe would have the best opportunities or some tips on sort of carving out that niche to start their career?
1: I've been told that at least in industry, uh, employers like to see more than just bench experience. Okay. So some, something that can be applied in business, so maybe like a business course or accounting or law. Hmm. I've, I've been told that. Okay. And a lot of grad students, like actually most grad students, don't get that experience because they're focused fairly myopically on their research. Right. Because grad, grad school is, is all-consuming. Like, uh, some profs are of the opinion that any time you spend not at the bench is wasted.
0: So where is this disconnect then? If we're talking about employers believing and wanting one thing versus the professors or the schools themselves saying you really need to put all of your eggs in one basket, where can, I mean, and maybe you don't know the answer, where can we find the, a compromise there?
1: Uh, that is one of the great questions <laughs> Okay. Here <laughs> right now. And if they ever sort that out, I will let you know.
0: Okay. Well, good to know. I mean, <laughs> I, again, something to keep in mind for those job seekers out there that if you can, find some time to, um, you know, spread spread the wealth a little bit with your your learning. It will definitely help you and set you apart, obviously, from the rest of the students. How about in terms of the interview? I understand it could, it's going to be different depending on, you know, the area you're going into the field specifically that you're maybe interviewing for. But any tips you could give to our listeners there for when they're going in and preparing for that job interview?
1: Uh, This is fairly general, but um, know what you're talking about when you show up.
0: That's a good start. That's a good start.
1: (laughs) I speak from experience here. If you're doing a phone interview with someone in a different time zone, uh, make sure you know which time zone they're quoting the time in. Okay,
0: Okay. good. (laughs) We do not have to go into details of how uh, you may have messed that up, but... uh... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> People like to hear that that even those that are successful in the profession also have made mistakes in the past and, and you learn to yeah. live you know you learn to live.
1: Uh, the biggest advice I say don't make the same mistake twice.
0: Okay. <laughs> That's always a good piece of advice. How about the idea of skills that would be essential, whether it be in nanochemistry, chemistry in general? I mean, are there certain things that you would say, look, this is absolutely necessary or even personality wise that you would need to succeed?
1: I would plug science communication.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Um,
1: A lot of times if you go in for a research position, they will ask you to talk about research you've done before. Mm -hmm. Maybe your PhD work or an undergrad work. And depending on who's interviewing you, there may be some scientists on the panel, but there may be uh, like the business owner or HR or other people there who are not scientists, who don't have the same background. So you need to be able to coherently communicate complex scientific ideas to a lay audience so anytime you can get some science communication experience, training, uh, anything like that, grab it.
0: Mm-hmm. Are there classes on that? Is that something you try to bring about when you're teaching? I mean, how, how, when, where can our job seekers, sort, you know, try to find that experience or find that help?
1: There, there, uh, some universities are starting that. Okay. And there's actually at, at Stony Brook, there's a uh, School of Science Communication. And hmm. it's, it's called the Alan Alda Center for Communicating Science. Ah. Yes, that's Alan Alda. <laughs> and so they do improv classes to help scientists be more effective communicators. And they also run every year what's called the Flame Challenge, which is a competition for scientists to explain a scientific concept to 11-year-olds. Hmm. Last year's winner in the video category was me. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, I, nice. The question, was, the question was, what is time? So I made a video, I sent it in and 11-year-olds all over the world voted on it and I won.
0: That is awesome. You know what's funny is I when you brought that up I actually have seen those and I've read about, you know, Alan Alda and all all the things he's done with that. Um so that's pretty cool. Just the little bit of symmetry there. Now that was from last year that you would want it? This summer, actually. Oh, it was this summer. Okay, great. Yeah, I did actually, I did actually come across that. I did, uh, didn't connect the dots there, but that's cool. Uh, where, well, where could people find that? Because I think that would be very interesting and helpful. I and mean, do you know where they could come across that video and, and see that?
1: Uh, if you uh, – Google knows everything. So, Flame Challenge 2013 winner. Okay. And then my name. Or it should be still be linked at the Center for Communicating Science homepage.
0: Great. That, that's, that's pretty cool. And as you said, I think that is such an important thing. And if you can't explain it to an 11-year-old, you, uh, I think the rest of the general public should be able to understand some of those concepts. So that's good, good to hear. I don't
1: know. The average 11-year-old is smarter than the average
0: grown-up. Whoa, whoa. All right. All right. Laying down the gauntlet there. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> For all you adults out there listening, uh, I, I did not say that. All the opinions <laughs> on this show are of the guests and not of the host themselves. Uh, I think all of you are really very smart. Uh, moving on with that, this is one of those questions that some people or uncomfortable with. Um, but we have to ask because, again, when you're talking about the schooling or the work that's involved or um, you know, our job seekers want to know, is it going to be worth it for me in terms of compensation? And again, I understand it's going to depend upon a lot of outside uh, factors, but can you give us a ballpark as far as what you could be making in this industry, what it looks like to start, how you can move up, any sort of information you can give us?
1: How much do you make? Uh, not enough.
0: Isn't that always the answer?
1: That's always the answer. Uh, I don't actually work in industry, right. and I never got to the point of negotiating salaries. so I don't really have a good good idea of, of what compensation is, but the impression I get from talking to people who are is it's not enough. Sure. And that's there's like across the board, wages are much lower than they should be mm-hmm. in in every profession, every industry
0: on the side of you mentioned you know research and that being, of course, a large part of what science is and discovery, how do you define success? And I know I didn't necessarily prep you for this question, but some people think, well, you can research research research, and nothing ever really comes of it. It doesn't mean you're not doing good work. It doesn't mean you're you're failing in any way. But I mean, in your mind, is success only when you make some sort of new discovery or you you carve out some path for yourself? How what does that look like if you're talking about research?
1: Well, for myself, my success was defined by others' expectations, okay. As a grad student, you're expected to produce a thesis, and success is measured by how many publishable results you get.
0: Hmm.
1: So you have to generate results, positive results. Like like in some fields, negative results are publishable because, because you said we checked all this, it didn't work, therefore we can say this is not going to work. In chemistry, you want to have something you can point to and says, I, say I made this, it works, we can publish this, and we can make more of it, and we can do successful chemistry with it. And then I have to convince three other people that, yes, I should have a degree.
0: <laughs> well, I think that's a good explanation because I think it can be a difficult concept to understand of what you're trying to accomplish and, and how you or everyone else views success. Uh, so I do appreciate you touching on that. We're getting a little on time, but I did want to ask you, and you mentioned your path, you know, it was a little interesting, I guess. But if you had to do it all over again, would you have chosen the path you did? Would you have looked elsewhere? Just your take on that, I guess. If I could do it
1: all over again, I would still have gone into chemistry Okay. because yeah. I have known I wanted to be a chemist since grade 11. Would I have made the exact decisions that I did? Um, probably not. If I Well, if I knew then what I do now, I probably wouldn't have listened to myself because I was 18 and thought I knew everything. <laughs> but um, I didn't really choose to go into nanochemistry. Just I fell into it. Right. So yeah, I did do all do it all over again. <laughs> all
0: right. The short firm answer, yes. Yeah, do it all over again. Lastly, we always like to give our listeners kind of a summary of what we talked about or another extra piece of advice that our expert guest, that would be you, can uh, offer up to them. What would, you, what would you give to our job seekers just as a final takeaway from the idea of, whether it be nanochemistry specifically or just getting into chemistry itself?
1: We've probably heard this from everybody else, but there, right now there's a glut of PhDs on the market. So anything you can have that sets you apart from everybody else, whether it's psychom experience, whether it's courses that businesses would like to see, whether it's even like scholarships, awards, maybe even the Flame Challenge, anything you can put on your CV that is more than just bachelor's, master's, PhD, postdoc is a help.
0: That's always good advice. Finding that way to stand out, even in an industry like chemistry. Well, Steve, we do appreciate you coming on, talking about this a little bit. I uh, I understand that as we've been discussing. There are a lot of different avenues with chemistry, and you may not you may not fit in right into that particular discipline you started with. But we were looking a little bit at nanochemistry today in this installment of I Want to Be A. Uh, Steve, again, thanks for sharing your experiences, and uh, maybe we'll talk to you again down the road. No worries. Of course, if you have any comments or questions regarding any of our podcasts here on LJN Radio, just send us an email to ljnradio at localjobnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening. I'm your host, Tim Muma. Take care, everybody.